I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Livewire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you can call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey, it's Luke Burbank. This is Livewire Radio. We're backstage at Revolution Hall here in Portland, and we have an amazing show coming up for you. We've got author Mac McClelland here, also the band Ivan and Alyosha. Our theme this episode is Going Gonzo, and it's in honor of this guest, John Ronson, whose new book is So You've Been Publicly Shamed. People have used the term gonzo to kind of describe your style of journalism, John. Do you feel like that's accurate? Well, not the taking drugs part. Um, if I have even more than, like, one beer, I, I just start to, like... Sob, But I suppose the putting myself in the story and getting out of my depth in adventures and ending up in dangerous situations, yes. Are you considering having a beer tonight? Because onstage sobbing for Livewire happens on a fairly regular basis. I had one beer at the hotel while I was waiting, but I was having it on a full stomach, so I think I might try and have one more beer, but I am sort of playing with fire a little bit. It's been a long book tour. <laughs> All right, it's going to get a little longer, but we hope in an entertaining fashion when we head out on that stage. Let's do that right now. From PRI, Public Radio International, it's... Hall in Portland, Oregon. It's Livewire with authors John Ronson and Mac McClellan. 36 questions, guinea pigs, Jed Arkley and Katie Watkins with music from Ivan and Aliosha and our fabulous house band. And now, the host of Livewire, the author of Fear and Loathing in his own head, Luke Burbank! Thank you so much, everybody. I did not realize how many of you were here until they turned down the stage lights, and now I'm a little nervous. But excited to be here. We have a great show for you. Our theme this hour is going gonzo. Not like the Muppet. We don't have that kind of money. But like kind of in the journalistic sense. We have a couple of different journalists who've been in some very interesting situations. They're going to tell us their stories. Also, our Livewire uh, writing staff decided to go full Hunter S. Thompson on it with really questionable results, which we will share with you coming up here in a, a few minutes. When I think about going gonzo and what that means, what comes to my mind is just really going for it, which is a thing I did not that long ago. A couple of shows ago, I was talking about how I recently bought a boat, which was a very bad idea because I didn't know how to drive it or maintain it, and I didn't really discuss it with my wife before I purchased it, which is pretty gonzo if you think about it. 
And when I was buying the boat from the guy, he said, do you know how to drive this kind of boat? And I looked him right in the eyes, and I lied to him, and I said, yes, I totally know how to drive this kind of boat. Because I wanted to seem like I was a cool, macho kind of dude who knows how to drive boats. Because this marina where I was buying the boat is right next to where they keep all the boats from that TV show, World's Deadliest Catch. <laughs> True story. And the guys in this marina are all just sort of salty old sailor type of dudes. There's like five guys that live on their boats in this marina, and four of them are named Jerry. <laughs> and they're the kind of guys I aspire to be, like... They're just, they know how to fix things, and they're very manly and very unperturbed, and I'm sure at no time this week were they freaking out because they hadn't added any Twitter followers. <laughs> like, that is not part of their stress cycle. And I wanted to fit in with these guys, so I said I knew how to drive the boat when I really didn't. And so fast forward to about a week later, I now own the boat, and I'm so excited to take it out that even though I don't know how to operate it, I decide I'm just going to go for it. I'm going to go gonzo. So I start the boat up, and I untie all the ropes, and I start easing it out into this channel, and that's when things go terribly wrong <laughs> because the boat is going too fast, and I don't know how to control it, and so I do something very ungonzo. I panic, and I just turn everything off, <laughs> which I think will solve the problem. That made the problem worse because it turns out it's a kind of boat that if you turn everything off, you also don't have any steering control on the boat. And the boat is 27 feet long, and about 30 feet in front of me is a row of super expensive boats <laughs> whose owners, I'm almost positive, don't want me crashing into their boats. So I'm now racing towards these boats, and I have to climb over to the front of my boat and put my leg out and hold <laughs> these other boats like back to stop from sinking them, and it works, kind of. Because I still hit the boats, but not as hard as I would have otherwise. <laughs> I take a breath, and I realize that there's a, a new maritime disaster about to happen. Because of the current, the boat is now starting to drift back towards a different sailboat that's tied up. So I have to run to the other side of the boat, and now stand in between that sailboat and this boat. And I'm at one of those moments where I genuinely do not know what the next move in my life is supposed to be. I consider crying. <laughs> like, really thought about it. I don't say that as like a hyperbolic joke. As a 38-year-old man, I was very close to weeping. Wow. And what I did was... <laughs> that guy owns one of the boats I hit, for the record. <laughs> so, that's fair. I got my cell phone out and I called the guy who runs the marina. I'm pretty sure he was named Jerry. And I said, hey, Jerry, I need your help. I don't know how to turn on the boat and keep it under my control. I'm crashing into other boats. Like, I am not a salty old maritimer. I am a public radio host who is in way over his head. And so the guy comes down, and he, like, starts the boat. He gets it going in the right direction. And I go out, and I'm in the larger body of water, and it's a beautiful day. And the whole time, I have a terrible terrible knot in my stomach because I know that at the end of the day I have to bring the boat back and try to park it in the same spot, backing it in, which is about a hundred times harder than getting it out. And I consider living on the boat. 
which is problematic because it doesn't have a bathroom, and I think I was in a shipping channel, so that's probably illegal or something. I'm not really up on maritime law either. So I finally get the nerve to sort of come back into this little marina, and I'm puttering along slowly, and I'm looking at all the other boats, and my dread is growing. I'm like Sean Penn in Dead Man Walking. And I get to the spot where I'm supposed to be, and I start backing the boat up, and I know the next sound I'm going to hear is just the boat crashing into the pilings, but I don't know what else to do. So I start backing it up, and a weird thing happens. There's no crash. And I look behind me, and all of the Jerry's have come out of their boats <laughs> and are surrounding the slip and, like, easing the boat delicately back into its spot. It's like an Amish barn raising in reverse <laughs> with more sort of functional alcoholism tied into it. But <laughs> And they tie the boat up really nice, and I get off the boat, and I say, how did you guys know that I needed help? And they said, well... We saw you hit about three boats leaving the marina. <laughs> so that was our first indicator. And they said, oh, and Jerry over there said, you called and said you needed help. So here we are, we're helping. And I was like, duh, that was the most gonzo thing I did that entire day was ask for help. Because we all get to that point in our life where you do not know what the next step is. And I know for me anyway, because I'm prideful, I like to just push through or try to figure it out. But I really think maybe the most powerful thing and certainly the most gonzo thing that you can do in that situation is just to stop and say, okay, I don't really know how to do this next thing. Anybody got any ideas? Because you never know. Right behind you, there might be four to five drunk guys named Jer Jerry who are just dying to help. At least that's what happened to me. So anyway, thanks. That happened to me this week. Um, Let's get our first guest out here. In his book, The Psychopath Test, John Ronson helped us decipher whether we're at risk to commit murder. In The Men Who Stare at Goats, he talked about soldiers who could kill with their minds. But his latest book, So You've Been Publicly Shamed, might be his most terrifying yet because it deals with Twitter and the internet and all the other digital nooks and crannies where many of us hang out to revel in schadenfreude and talk about just how lame everyone else's behavior is. Can already hear the uh, comments and emails being composed over this intro. Anyway, please welcome John Ronson to LiveWire. Hi there. Hi. We were talking backstage, and you said that if you have more than one beer, you just start weeping. And I'm, and I'm this looking is my at you holding a beer. beer. I know. Yeah, I'm the worst person to be a gonzo journalist because, A, I suffer from terrible anxiety, which is really bad when you suddenly find yourself being outed as a Jew at a jihad training camp, which is what happened to me a few years ago, um, in uh, near Gatwick Airport. Um, How does that conversation go? Uh, the leader of the jihad training camp said, look at me with the infidel John who is... A Jew! And they all went, oh! And I said, surely it's better to be a Jew than an atheist. And I heard someone in the crowd go, no, it isn't. <laughs> um, yeah. They sound like kind of a passive-aggressive group of terrorists. Well, then, then they all kind of surrounded me and treated me like a, like a rare fish you'd find at the bottom of a coral reef. 
And I was all like nice and normal, and I thought I'd kind of heal drifts between, uh, between the Jews and the Muslims, but I didn't turn out to be the case at all. Yeah, um, I feel like some of that yeah. um, tension is still exists even after your special yeah. this was shortly <laughs> Camp David before, Accord you tried to yeah, sign at Gatwick. This was shortly before 9-11. Uh, you, your new book is called So You've Been Publicly Shamed, and you got the idea for the book because somebody basically stole your identity on Twitter? Yeah, I, I, was, I, I'd, uh, I accidentally uh, typed my name into Google uh, one day and um, <laughs> discovered that there was another John Ronson on Twitter who was tweeting something like, uh, as, I, as I stared in surprise at its timeline, I had my face and my name, and it tweeted something like... Um, I'm dreaming something about time and uh, So... Had you tweeted that that day? No, I mean, I'm not that candid. Um, uh, anyway, so it turned out to be these three academics and, and they refused to take down the spam bot, so I, I, I said, well, look, maybe I can film you and we can put it on YouTube. And, and so I did. And to cut a long story short, I, I filmed these guys and they told me that they were annoyed with me because what right did I have to be the only John Ronson? Uh, Wait, I, so let me just, let me just uh, explain this for people that are maybe not as Twitter savvy. These people created a, a computer program mm. that had the same name as you and that would just randomly throw out tweets that were... Kind it of tended non- to be about fusion cooking. Uh, things like, can't wait to have a delicious plate of celeriac and grouper, hashtag yummy. Uh, <laughs> and it was, it was being followed by these people that I knew from real life who were wondering how I'd become so interested in fusion cooking. <laughs> like, just to put it into perspective, and also this other John Ronson was like constantly going on about these fantastic dinner parties he was being invited to. And then the entire period, I was only invited to one thing that could possibly be considered a dinner party. So uh, the bot had a better life than much you. Much better life than me. As I, tu- I was much more comfortable at dinner parties. When I went to the dinner party, I turned up and the host said, uh, would you like some, some potato chips? And I said, no, thank you. I'm going to have cereal when I get home. Uh, <laughs> and my wife why, why would you say that? Uh, well, now I understand that it wasn't the right thing to say when you turn up at a dinner party. But at the time, was it, was, it like a carbs it issue? Was, it was what I was thinking. I was just dreaming of when the dinner party would be over, so I could go home and have cereal. <laughs> um, my wife was like um, glaring at me from across the room, and I, I, I went, "What?" And she went, "Be more general." <laughs> <laughs> well, so. Anyway, I know this is off point. Uh, so This whole show is typically off point, so okay. you're, you're among friends here. How did your wife get past your specificity then to want to marry you? Yeah, no, I, 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 you know, she just, it was charitable. Uh, <laughs> I remember one time we were, when we were courting... Um, she would do all these like special occasions for me, um, which were always like really bad special occasions. Like she once sent me on a spa weekend, even though she knows I don't like being touched. <laughs> and um, as the masseuse was massaging me, it was like really awkward because uh, I was you know trying to make polite conversation. So I said, um, "Yeah, I've got uh, my memory. I've got a terrible memory. My childhood's completely gone." 
And, and the masseuse, as she was massaging me, said, well, most people who don't remember anything about their childhood, uh, it turns out when they recover their lost memories, they were sexually abused <laughs> by their parents. So I said, uh, well, I'd, I'd remember that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> this is why, while you are essentially naked under a sheet and yeah. she's massaging your back, that seems like a mm. fairly intense line of conversation for yes. that situation. I, and also, I'd go, I remember one time talking about getting into gonzo difficulties. Um, there was a time when I was being... I tried to infiltrate the Bilderberg Group. Have you heard of the Bilderberg Group? Uh, I've, I've gone to the darker corners of the internet where they talk of the Bilderbergers and the Illuminati and yes. the like. I tried to infiltrate the Illuminati one time. How'd that go? Wait, actually, Went John, badly. Hold, hold that thought because we've got to take a short break, but I want to hear about this. We've got John Ronson here. This is Livewire Radio from PRI. We will be back in just a moment. This podcast is brought to you by Ergo Depot who offer up this tip on goal setting. Make them small, realistic, and achievable, and you might actually reach them. So don't say, I want to be just like Gandhi. Say, I want to be less of a jerk to my cat. Or, or don't say, this year I'm running a marathon. Just say, this year I'm going to sit less. Doesn't that feel freaking doable? That's because it is. With Ergo Depot sit-stand desks and active sitting solutions, you'll hit your goal in a single day. And then you'll be a better person, just like Gandhi. Visit ErgoDepot.com to start your transformation. Welcome back to Livewire Radio from PRI. We're coming to you from Portland, Oregon. I'm Luke Burbank. We have John Ronson here. His latest book is So You've Been Publicly Shamed. You were... Talking about your attempt to infiltrate the Illuminati, what, yes. what was your success rate with that it was not, caper? It was not a success. Um, <laughs> I'd been told that the Bilderberg Group were meeting at this five-star hotel with golfing facilities in Portugal. So I went there the day before they were supposed to arrive to scout around the place to kind of maybe forge contacts with waiters uh, and chambermaids. Uh, anyway, then I left and I started getting followed by men in dark glasses, and a chase ensued. I, I say a chase. I was going 30 miles an hour, and so, so was he. But if I'd gone faster, he'd have gone faster. Um, and, I, and, and I phoned at the British Embassy, and I said, I'm being followed by the Bilderberg Group. And she went, oh, and then she went, go on. Is it possible with the accent she thought you said you were being followed by Bilderberg? <laughs> Which is a much less ominous, shadowy cabal well, she of was, teddy bears sold at malls. She was, in, she was English, too. So oh, no, so she, she did spoke your you language. You know what she said, though, which, which has always stayed with me, it's very odd. She said, um, if you know you're being followed, they're not the dangerous ones. The dangerous ones would be the ones you don't know are following you. But I thought... I thought, that's scant comfort, because what if, what if they are the dangerous ones and I just happen to be naturally good at spotting them? Uh, anyway, that's what I... They said, what are you doing here? What are you doing in Portugal? So I, I said, I'm essentially a humorous journalist out of my depth. <laughs> but then I phoned my wife. This is why we were talking. I phoned my yeah. wife, and I said, I'm, I'm, I'm being... I'm, it's all gone terribly wrong. <laughs> so I said, I'm being followed by the Bilderberg Group, and I, I, and I don't know if I'm ever going to see you again. And she went, my wife went, 
Oh, you're loving it. <laughs> John Ronson, ladies and gentlemen. That was John Ronson. His latest book is So You've Been Publicly Shamed. You're listening to Livewire Radio. Still trying to live down the shame from that time we were arrested for refusing to leave a Mexican restaurant until they served us a meatball sub. Guess that's what we get for pounding six Zimas in the bar at Los Jalapenos in Chehalis, Washington. A little warning here. In true gonzo fashion, this next segment involves the intersection of drugs and an attempt, at least, at creativity. Of course, Hunter S. Thompson was the founder of gonzo journalism, and he did pretty much all of his writing slash living while drunk and on a variety of mind-bending drugs. So in a tribute to his work, our writers decided to attempt something that has never been done before. Writing comedy while high on marijuana. <laughs> or maybe that's been done before, but, but probably not on public radio that you know of. We're looking at you, the capital steps. Anyway... Uh, as, as you might know, marijuana is legal just to the north of us up in Washington State, so our writers went to a fine marijuana establishment. They made their purchase. Just to be clear, they actually did this. This is not some bit for the radio show. We've got our head writer here. Courtney Hommeister took notes, recorded the night, and what you are about to hear is a timeline of their evening along with some short reenactments. Please welcome head writer Courtney Hommeister. Thank you. <laughs> 7.50, writers Jason Rouse and Sean McGrath both try sativas. I ask how many tokes it takes to get stoned and get laughed at. I try an indica because I'm high strung and prone to anxiety. And Andrew Harris tries a hybrid called Juicy Fruit. 8.10, conversational snippet. Yeah, and then the guy wrote me a note in highlighter. Writing notes in highlighter is a total serial killer move. It's like, it's like having no eyebrows. Yeah. 8.50. I have my first mini anxiety attack, and we come up with a theme for our next show. Outsiders or outcasts? That sends us down a rabbit hole about a remake of The Outsiders starring hip-hop duo Outcast, and whether Andre 3000 would play Soda Pop or Pony Boy. 9.30. No sketch ideas yet. Sean asked me to call for pizza. I make Sean call because talking to strangers on the phone makes me feel weird. 9.32, business idea, a service you call that will call and order stuff for you. Need to order something but feel weird? Call the ordering place. We add a much-needed step to the process of requesting goods and services. 9.40, Sean finally orders a pizza with no meat. Andrew asks for sausage, which sends Sean, who claims not to be stoned, into what appears to be an oft-repeated pizza rant. Look, if we get cheese on one half and then meat on the other half, then at least two of my cheese slices are going to be infected by your meat slices, and it's going to ruin the whole thing, and you're going to get two more slices of my cheese side. It is imperial pizza, uh, imperialism, or pizza imperialism. <laughs> you said pizza imperialism. Just get your own pizza, Andrew. 9.45, product idea. The Great Wall of Pizza. Topping dividers for half-and-half half pizzas to protect against topping encroachment. Still no sketch ideas. 9.48. Shockingly, still no sketch ideas. 
9.50. A conversation about expert snipers is underway. Andrew says that snipers sometimes have to account for the curvature of the earth. Jason mentions the film American Sniper. Do you remember that scene late in the movie when he's out sniping and he had to I, use... I, 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 I haven't seen it. Spoilers. How is that a spoiler? You, you said that he's sniping. Well, yeah. He's, of course he's sniping. It's called American Sniper. It's American Sniper, dude. It's not going to ruin it if you know he's sniping. The spoiler would be if he didn't snipe. Yeah, but then I would know he didn't snipe at that one part, okay? I don't like spoilers. Oh, I hate you. 10.04... I have another mini-anxiety attack, and Sean, who still claims he's not stoned, has a sketch idea. So I heard this thing about Thomas Jefferson and how he claimed that for 50 years, the sun never caught him in bed. He was an early riser. So what if we interpret that literally like, like he's cheating on the sun with the moon? Yeah. 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 Alexander Hamilton's cat was bisexual, I'm pretty sure. So how many presidents' cats do you think were homosexual? Oh, most of them. Most of them. Does light really penetrate a potato? That doesn't have anything to do with presidents. I know. It has something to do with the other thing. I don't know what it is yet. What if we did something about strange presidential facts? Well, Calvin Coolidge had six fingers on one hand, and he couldn't whistle. William Howard Taft could not be tickled. Ronald Reagan was a ring-tailed lemur. <laughs> of course light does not penetrate a potato, Rouse. I don't... 10.15. Two hours in and we don't have any usable sketch ideas, but we still think the Great Wall of Pizza is a viable product idea. At 10.49, we're all just watching a baby laugh hysterically at a dog eating popcorn on YouTube. Sean has ended up on a site called Toddle Tales. It's as if he's gotten to the end of the internet. There were no more sites he could be on. There should be a service for when you get to the end of the internet called, like, Internet 2. And it's where illegal things happen and people upload Xerox Kathy comics. 11 o'clock. At the end of the night, Sean mentions that comic book character Iceman recently came out. Jason has an idea for a sketch where other superheroes then feel they can tell their own truths. Aquaman's a hoarder. Wonder Woman always dreamed of being an insurance adjuster, etc. After two and a half hours, it's our only viable sketch idea. We learned a couple of things that night. Hunter S. Thompson was just a good writer, stoned or not. And Nancy Reagan was probably right about drugs. The gonzo styling of Andrew Harris, Sean McGrath, Jason Rouse, and Courtney Hameister. Uh, next week, a moment-by-moment -moment breakdown of when Courtney told our executive producer, Robin Tenenbaum, how much they spent on the weed. <laughs> Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines, now featuring nonstop flights from Portland to St. Louis. That is 178 less stops than Lewis and Clark had to make with 100% less chance of getting attacked by a buffalo. More information on how Alaska helps you stay connected nonstop at alaskaair.com. You're listening to Livewire, by the way, and just so you know, there's no one named Ivan or Alyosha in the Seattle band Ivan and Alyosha. There are a couple of Tims, but Tim and Tim doesn't really have the same ring to it. Their latest release is It's All Just Pretend, and it was called Captivating by Paste Magazine. Please welcome Ivan and Alyosha to Livewire. Hello. 
Ivan and Alyosha right here on Livewire. You're listening to Livewire Radio from PRI, brought to you in part by New Belgium Brewing. It's 100% employee-owned and consistently voted one of the most democratic places to work, probably because they are allowed to drink beer at work, but they will take it. 
As you've heard, our theme this week is going gonzo, and really what could be more gonzo than standing on stage during a public radio show and agreeing to see if you can fall in love with basically a complete stranger. That is exactly what Katie Watkins and Jed Arkley agreed to do back during our Valentine show. Here's what happened. We had Jed and Katie, who had never been on a date before, ask each other the 36 questions to make someone fall in love with you that a lot of us read about in the New York Times. And amazingly, this cockamamie scheme apparently worked because two months later, they are still dating. We wanted to see how they're doing. So please welcome back to the Livewire stage, Jed Arkley and Katie Watkins. Well, welcome back, you two. Hello. Hi. Hi. Just to uh, refresh people's memories, um, what was it like when you guys were on stage during our Valentine show and also backstage running through these 36 questions? How did that feel for you guys, Katie? Crazy. It was, it was insane. I mean, I, I think I was skeptical about whether it would work or not, and it was just kind of fun and silly, and then something happened. I don't know. Yeah, you know, when you sort of feel that, you have that feeling towards somebody where it actually feels like it's physical, and so it kept growing, and it was like this energy started shooting between us, so it was kind of wonderful. <laughs> was there a particular question that... <laughs> You've just been doing this for like two straight months. Yeah. Giggling. I don't mean it, although probably that too. I don't know how loose yeah. your morals are. <laughs> Was there any particular question? I need to narrate, by the way, for the radio listeners. These people are handsy-posy. I'm going to be honest with you. They're holding hands. They're petting each other's faces. And they are not paid endorsers. They are real people who we made fall in love in some sick romance game that we did. Was there a particular question of the 36 questions that you guys, that either of you sort of remember that really stood out as a big moment? Yeah, I, I think one of the tricky ones that was challenging was you had to tell your whole life story in four minutes. And that was tough because in doing so, you end up saying a lot of things really quickly that you might not want to say, like you might not want to lead with, you know. Did um, you say something that was, you know, much more forward than you would have been were this a typical date, Jay? Well, yeah. I mean, like, you know, frankly, like I've, you know, saying, oh, I'm, I'm divorced and have a kid. Like I don't usually lead, wait I, for like the second year. Yeah, the to second tell them. year. <laughs> I like to play it cool yeah. on that one. <laughs> That's just my short roommate. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How but about you, <laughs> Katie? Did you did you find yourself caught up in the questions and saying things that you would typically never say on a regular Absolutely. day? Absolutely. Yeah. It's funny because a lot of the questions, or, or relatively quickly throughout the thirty six questions, they start to add in really negative questions or yeah. things that could be perceived negatively. Like what is your most terrible memory? And the time are... this guy told me he has a kid. Right. <laughs> and it, it was, was thirty so seconds ago. I thought this was going somewhere. But it, yeah, so hearing those things and saying those things out loud, you you really do, you're kind of zipping through these questions and you um and and I just said things that I yeah, that I might have waited or maybe never said. I don't know. How has it been going since you left the radio show? It's been going really great. <laughs> we like we decided. We decided. Um, I'm just blushing. I know. There's been a lot of blushing. Like we, it was funny because uh, we decided that we would be 
you know, after I think like four or five weeks that we were going to be officially boyfriend, girlfriend, we weren't going to deal with that sort of, we're hanging out. You weren't going to really go chill. on car talk and try no. to meet a different person? No. no. That's good. I like to hear it. that. Yeah. But yeah, I, I had actually texted Katie and I, it was just sort of in jest. And I said, oh, now that I'm, you've got my t-shirt, is that, will you be my girlfriend? And she said, you have to call me right now and ask me that. You can't, you can't text a question like <laughs> yeah, that. Come on. Kind of, <laughs> okay. I don't, I don't want to uh, jinx anything, but I mean, it sounds like this is moving in the direction of being a fairly serious thing in your life. Yeah. We're boyfriend and girlfriend, Luke. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to ask the next question because, again, I don't want to put either of you in an awkward place, but I guess it feels to me like, I don't know, you guys could be back here someday possibly having a public radio wedding. Uh, the problem is that the, um, they exchange tote bags instead of rings, <laughs> which is very unromantic and usually leads to underlying problems in the relationship. Well, listen, you guys, this is amazing. I am so glad that you agreed to undergo this <laughs> weird experiment uh, back on Valentine's Day. I'm so glad it's working yeah. out. I've got a lot of personal happiness riding on you guys staying together. <laughs> so please don't screw this up for me. <laughs> Enjoy the rest of your life or until we talk again. Thank you so much, Jed and Katie. Yeah, thank you, Luke. All right, thanks, you guys. Now, by the way, for the rest of you, maybe you're not the kind of person who wants 36 questions to fall in love. Maybe you want 36 questions to fall out of love, which our LiveWire writers have been doing some uh, extensive anecdotal research on based on a lot of breakups, and we've picked just a few at random from the list they came up with. Here are some questions to fall out of love. If you weren't married to me, would you still listen to my band? <laughs> Here's another one um, that'll probably be an issue. Which of my friends are you the most attracted to? Um, in your mind, what do you think is my professional ceiling? Uh, if you had to, which part of my face would you change? And the deal breaker, what do you think about when we have sex? By the way, you're welcome to test the tensile strength of your own relationship by checking out the full list at our blog, livewireradio.org slash I don't want to be married anymore. <laughs> that was Jed Arkley and Katie Watkins, by the way, who might have found love on this very stage, which is apparently a thing we provide here on Livewire. Speaking of stuff we do, please come see the radio stuff we do live if you're in the Portland area. You can find more information at livewireradio.org. All right, our next guest has been called brave, swashbuckling, and a badass by various news outlets, and frankly, we have to agree. Mac McClelland has chased a warlord in the Congo, worked as a warehouse wage slave for Amazon, and covered some of the most difficult stories in the aftermath of the 2010 earthquake in Haiti for outlets like Wired, Rolling Stone, and the New York Times. Her most recent book is a deeply personal memoir about her struggle after the experience in Haiti. The book is called Irritable Hearts, a PTSD love story. Please welcome Mac McClellan to Livewire. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Tell me a little bit about your life before you went to Haiti, you were sort of a gallivanting international journalist, seemed pretty 
unperturbed by things? Uh, I like to think of myself as pretty unperturbed, like most people, I think, do. Um, I still do international stories and just cover human rights was my beat, so a lot of it tended to be very depressing, let's say, because uh, it wasn't like happy human rights. It was, you know, violations and that yeah. sort of thing. The happy human rights don't get the coverage. They don't. Really, that they no, should. No, they really don't. I think that's what the Kardashians are. Yeah. <laughs> So exactly I guess they are right. getting enough coverage, for me anyway. <laughs> so, okay, so then you, you go to Haiti in the aftermath of the earthquake, and everything kind of changed for you then, I guess. It did. Well, the story ended up being about... By the way, this is getting so suddenly dark. I was just watching those people sit here, like, pawing at each other, and then I'm like, let's talk about sexual violence. Well... <laughs> I will mention to people that uh, there is also a love story woven through your that's book. That's true. That's so true. So stay tuned for that, everybody. So right. you go to you 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 go to Haiti to cover the aftermath of the earthquake. Yes. And the- and and something really intense goes down. And what to me was very interesting about how you wrote about it in the book is that you didn't really write about the event itself. Why why did you make that choice? Well, I. Um... The story ended up being a lot about sexual violence, as I have alluded to, and I witnessed some things that other people went through that were very intense, but that's their story, so uh, I left it out of the book, and that was all I was going to say about that. But it's also your story, too, because it had a huge impact on you, right? It did, but I, I focused more on my reaction to it than on what was actually happening. So what happened to me was that I dissociated for the first time, which is when you, if you ever hear people talking about they didn't feel like they were inside their body, they felt like they were outside watching it. That's what happened to me, and it's actually extremely common, but if it's never happened to you before and you're like a full-grown adult at work and all of a sudden you like can't feel your body and like don't know what planet you're on, it's very disorienting. When did you realize that that was something that was happening for you? Well, I mean, I could feel that immediately. And then I just um, very quickly unraveled, and I started drinking a lot. Well, you know, but that's what you're supposed to do as a journalist, people think. So nobody right. was really moved by that. Yeah, international journalists in particular have this kind of fraternity, right? Yeah, Where I was you- contractually obligated to be, like, <laughs> housed all the time after 5 p.m., so nobody was like, what's wrong with that girl? It was like, yeah, yeah, journalism. So I was getting very, very drunk. You and Sylvia Pujoli and... just putting back the fireball. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But, the, but I will say, you also, <laughs> in, in the midst of this really traumatic time in Haiti for you, you, you meet a handsome, mysterious French soldier in a swimming pool. Yeah. So you, and, and this relationship sort of <laughs> blossoms. How does that coexist with the PTSD that you're that you're then suffering through? Um, difficultly, I would say it was at first. So he did not speak the English, and I did not speak French when we met. And we had like some very elaborate pantomime conversations for like a while. And then I went back to my room, and then I was like brushing my teeth, and I was like, should I go back up there and like? make out with that guy, and I was like, oh, I'm working, you know, whatever. So I was going to go to bed, and then he knocked on my door, and he has subsequently told me, because we've been married for three years, that he was standing out there practicing the sentence in English, can I kiss you, which he said uh, with, like, grammatical disaster. And then, uh, and then we made out. He came out, can I enter you? <laughs> and then the PTSD began. Yeah, Base, that's, yeah, 
That's well, basically how it happened. Well, I found, I found this book actually very <laughs> fascinating because one of the things that you talk about, and, you know, we're, we're having a fun time tonight, and we're joking around to some degree, but... A, but let's end that. Let's, let's put an end to that. Yeah. There was, you talk about the fact that something like PTSD is actually, in a way, contagious. That is to say, a person who's been through something can in a way transmit it to a person who hasn't been through that. I had never heard that before. Is that actually scientifically verified? It is a scientific... It's not just my uh, personal, drunk, international journalist (laughs) opinion. People have long known that living with extremely traumatized people can become traumatizing to the people who live with them, and people just... It just doesn't get that much play, so... But if you think about it, it's totally logical. I mean... My poor, beautiful husband, like, you know, I would have days and days and days at a time where I would just be, like, on the floor for, like, five or six hours, like, sobbing or screaming. Or, I mean, that's horrible. Like, it's not, it makes sense that it would be traumatizing for other people. And also you write about the fact that it's not just somebody who's fighting in a war or covering a war. There are so many different things that can kind of create this PTSD in, in somebody. What should somebody do if they know somebody who's going through something like this, however they arrived at it? I mean, I'm a proponent of a professional intervention. You know, like if my car wasn't working, I would totally go to a mechanic. So, And I lived in San Francisco at the time, so it was not a big deal for me to go to a therapist because that's how we do there, you know. So I... Uh, they have them on the BART. Yeah, I was there you just like, get on. immediately in the airport. I just like walked yes. into the therapist lounge there yeah. and I was like, Next to the sunglasses something's hut. wrong. Yeah. yeah, so they, and I actually, that was where she was saying, oh, you know, this is, these are the symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. And I was like, come on. And I'm like, it doesn't make any sense to me. I wouldn't have guessed that in a million years. But actually car accidents are a huge, one of the number one causes of trauma in the United States and actually women Violence against women is the biggest cause of PTSD in this country. Not like being a combat veteran, but people just don't talk about that much. Cause okay, well, so therapy. Women. But then, and I know, <laughs> I know there's no. <laughs> I know there's certainly not a one direction that you, Mac McClellan, can give all the people of the world who are either going through this or trying to help somebody with it, but. Aside from therapy, is, is it listening to the people who are talking through stuff and crying through stuff? Is it trying to help create solutions? What's, what's a useful thing to do? I actually found, for me, one of the biggest problems was that I was my worst enemy because I, you know, I grew up in this country and I know that it is not cool to be like losing it and crying all the time. Like nobody likes that. Like you shouldn't be sad. And if you're going to be sad, you shouldn't be doing it around other people or you should suck it up like pretty quick. So uh, we have, that's a really pervasive idea in our culture and it was really hard for me to get over and it's hard for other people to get over. You know, even with depression, people are like, that's fake. And as you know, it seems like you're just like whining or malingering or something. So I think compassion really for yourself and from other people. And the more you get it from other people, the easier it is to foster in yourself. It's, it's like, oh, your audience is so sweet. I love Portland. That is a very Portland applause. It is. If we were on the East Coast right now? Yeah. No. You would not get that. You'd not get that applause in Philly. Well, how are, how are you doing? We've got to wrap this up, Mac, but how are you doing now? Well, I had the luxury of many many thousands of dollars of intensive San Francisco high-class like treatment. So, I mean, that's, that's great. And I think if a normal person lived in my life and they saw sort of the way that I... I mean, I still... 
I mean, I still have episodes and stuff, but it's fine. Like, that's fine. Just like it is fine for people who don't have emotional disorders to have episodes and freak out sometime, it's also fine for me. And, like, knowing that it's fine is a big deal. So, like, if you're hanging around with me, you might be like, that chick maybe is a little bit unstable, but I think I'm doing great. And well, Nico thinks good. I'm doing great. That's so. good. As long as you and Nico are happy. Yeah. Mac McClellan, her book, is Irritable Hearts, a PTSD Love Story. Thank you, Mac. Thank you. And now, please welcome back to the stage Ivan and Alyosha. Right here on Livewire Radio. Well, 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 announcer Jason Rouse. Here we are at the end of another 
Aloha. Hour of, uh, that means hello and goodbye, I've heard. <clears throat> Speak a little Hawaiian. Multilingual, no big Not deal. Not to brag. <laughs> what do you think you learned about, uh, about going gonzo in the past uh, 56 minutes or whatever it's been? Well, I learned that if you work for a show long enough, you can come up with an idea where in that show will pay for your weed. Yeah. It goes for a lot of jobs. Just stick with it, you guys. You'll get there. You'll get there. I, I think my big takeaway is, I'll be honest, sometimes we turn in a fairly mediocre radio show, yeah. but we are a hell of a dating service. I mean, it's unbelievable. So Amen. Thank you very much. That's our show. We'll see you next week. Thanks, everybody. Our thanks to our guests, John Ronson, Jed Arkley, Katie Watkins, Mac McClelland, and Ivan and Alyosha. This show was made possible in part by our sponsors, New Belgium Brewing, Whole Foods Market, Ergo Depot, and Alaska Airlines. Hotel accommodations generously provided by the Hotel Deluxe. Robin Tenenbaum is the executive producer and co-creator of Livewire. Courtney Hameister is head writer and producer. Jim Brunberg is producer and member of our house band, along with Jonathan Newsom, Dave Jorgensen, and Ned Failing. Jason Rouse is associate producer and part of our writing team, along with Alex Falcone and Sean McGrath. Graham Nystrom is our technical director. House sound by D. Neil Blake. Lighting by Jillian Tabler. Special thanks tonight to Chef Alex Yoder of Olympia Provisions. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council, Meyer Memorial Trust, the Oregon Arts Commission, the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation, the Maybell Clark McDonald Fund, the Oregon Community Foundation, Work for Art, the Multnomah County Cultural Coalition, and listeners like you fine people. For more information about the show or becoming a member of Livewire, visit livewireradio.org. You can download our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud, and find us on Twitter and Facebook at Livewire Radio. I'm Luke Burbank. We'll see you next week. PRI, Public Radio International. Dear Livewire, when we first met, I was really shy. I had no idea we'd spend so much time together or that you'd be one to fill my heart with, with joy and make me want to be a better person. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were here. I was busy reading a review from one of our many many rapturously smitten listeners. Oh, wait. Actually, no. Sorry. This is from Elena. Anyway, the point is uh, it would be really helpful if you wanted to leave us a review. Feel free to say really nice things about us, and uh, we'll even read them now and then on the show, so you might hear your review of Livewire read on the program itself. Uh, Reviews help other people hear about the show, and then we can keep doing this for a long, long time, because we love having this job. Uh, Thank you so much if you've left a review, and if you're about to leave a review, you can go ahead and do it right where you get the podcast.